Am I on here? Okay. Good. Everybody have your notes, kids? The handouts? That was my first attempt at this, so I tried to follow Pastor Brandon's uh, handout that he sent me, kind of gave me an illustration. I'm going to do my best to make sure you get the answers for that. And uh, sometimes I tend to get going, sometimes a little fast, at times a little loud, and uh, sometimes I divert from my notes. So I, I'm going to try not to do that this morning and try to really get it so you guys can have all the, the answers so that we can all get a treasure at the end, right? They do have one for the speaker, I, I'm assuming. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, it never ceases to amaze me how the... the uh, the Spirit of God works in a church and bringing together the worship service itself because the songs really tied in to what we're talking about this morning. And especially the last one we sang, it says, Speak, O Lord, uh, and renew our minds and help us grasp the heights of Your plans for us. I think that, is a, that comes right from Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. I'm confident of that, and I think that God had that in mind for us. So He has the theme that He has put together in everything, from the music to the, to the Scripture reading to the preaching. And He is here in a very real way with us right now. And as far as I stay to the Bible, as far as I stay to the text and what it says, He is speaking to us. And those of you who have the Spirit of God indwelling you, that gives you the mind of Christ, He will, I pray, that He will give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, you will be able to understand fully the Word of God and the message that He has for us. That's how, see, that's how important preaching is. It's the time of the week where we come together corporately and we ask God and we beg God by His grace to speak to us through His Word. I'm, I'm not going to stand up here and, and receive a fresh word of knowledge for you. What I have is what God has already revealed in His Word by His Spirit. So let's read these first two verses of Romans chapter 12 again. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect or good and acceptable and perfect. I've entitled this message The Good Life. What is the good life? On the top of the handout for the kids you can see uh, what many Americans would consider the good life, right? Lots of money, or at least enough money to buy whatever you want. Or lots of leisure time. Many people live their whole life, they're working away at a job they don't like to get to the good life where they get to retire and sit on a beach and golf a lot and do nothing else. That to them, in their minds, they're envisioning that's a good life. For our kids and our teens who... Uh, hopefully are not watching American Idol, but I know some are, are watching this show that America is telling them uh, that the good life for them would be the life where they're on a stage and they're singing and they're performing and they have 
thousands of adoring fans standing out and worshiping them as an idol and giving them glory and, and wanting to be like them. And then they would at the end get a, a big fat paycheck which they could go and buy whatever they want in the big house and end up on MTV Cribs and camera crews can come through their house and see how much stuff they have. And to them, that would be the good life. That's their dream. That's their aspirations. And I am afraid that Christians in the United States and our culture can very easily start conforming to that idea of the good life. We can get thrown off track. What Paul is appealing to us here is that because of what God has done for us in Christ, that is, he's calling it the mercies of God. Because of what he did for us, the mercies that he poured out on us, our lives are to be totally and completely and radically different and changed. They are to be lives of wholehearted, complete devotion to God for whatever His will is for our lives. Okay? That's the, pretty much the theme of this message. So what does God say the good life is? I'm here to say it's not making as much money as you can. It's not all about avoiding as much pain as you can and finding more pleasure. It isn't about that. It isn't about getting to your retirement with a huge 401k and pension and then living the rest of your life doing what you want to do. That's not what your life is about. Well... What is the good life? Number one, according to this text, according to verse 1, the good life begins with the mercies of God. The good life begins with the mercies of God. Well, that begs the question then, what are the mercies of God? What is Paul talking about here? Are the mercies of God? Well, if you look what he says in verse 1, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers by the mercies of God. A very important word in that sentence was therefore. We've heard this a million times if you've grown up in church, been to Sunday school and heard lessons. Therefore is an important word, right? It connects you to everything that was said before. And I would argue that we find what Paul means by the mercies of God in the first 11 chapters of this book. He has just spent the 11 chapters writing to the church in Rome about the mercies of God. Let me give you just a synopsis of some of those mercies that if we're born again, it only pertains to those of you who are born again. Those of you who have repented of your sins and your faith is totally in Jesus Christ and you know that. This only begins, the good life is only for saved people. Okay? Everybody else is outside of that, so it has to begin with the mercies of God. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, tells us, this is one of them, tells us that God has mercifully changed our status from enemies of God to children of God. We start out in the first few chapters, first five really, of Romans, and we are told that our status before God is that of an enemy. So when God views unsaved people, He views them as His enemies. They are opposed to God in every way. They are all under sin. They are all under His condemnation, both Jew and Gentile. No distinction, says God. All have fallen short, in Romans chapter 3, of the glory of God. All have sinned. And all deserve the wages of sin, which is what? Death. 
Physical and spiritual, which will be eternal separation from God. But the mercies of God in Christ that Paul explains says you were an enemy of God. That's Romans chapter 5. But now he has transferred your status to Romans chapter 8, what we read earlier. You're You're a child of God. How many times did he say that? Now we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ being the firstborn among many brethren. That's mercy. It's mercy to take an enemy and make him an adopted child, and even more than that, a fellow heir of all the inheritance that is given to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have every spiritual blessing is given to us in Christ. It's ours. It's our possession. So that certainly is merciful that He would change our status from enemies of God to children of God. But there's more. We're told that we went from being in a status of condemnation in God's courtroom. We stand before God as the judge. He looks at us and the verdict is, you're guilty. You're condemned. You are sentenced to the death that has deserved you. We go from condemnation to what's the opposite of that? Justification. Is that what Paul's arguing? How can we be justified? How can we be declared righteous? Only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So He's changed us. One of the mercies is He changes us from being condemned to justified. Righteous before Him because of the righteousness of Christ given to us. And then another important one, another important mercy that was given to us is from wrath to love. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are our children of wrath, by, by our very natures, opposed to God, and we are children of His wrath. And Paul argued in chapters 1 and 5 of Romans that the wrath of God is right now being revealed against the children of men, and there is coming a time when the wrath is going to fully be revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness and wickedness. And we were children of wrath, but He had mercy on us, and we go move from wrath to love. An unseparable love, where Christ or Paul can argue in Romans chapter eight, who who can separate us from the love of God? Can you find anything in this world, or in another world, or in the spiritual realm that can we separate you from the love of God once you're in? And the answer to that question is no, you cannot. We have been moved from wrath to love. And so, it is based on the fact that we are all recipients of the mercy of God that we are called to a new way of life. Because what Paul's calling us to in the good life that God says is radical. And it's going to cost you something. Jesus spent much of His time when He dealt with people on this earth turning people away. Didn't He? You want to follow me? Rich young ruler comes up. What do I have to do? Follow the law. I'm doing that. Okay, go sell everything you have. You want to follow me? Cost you everything you have. You go sell it, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he turned that man away. He turned around and he left him. The rich young ruler didn't want to sell everything he had. He loved the things of this world. God is calling us to a radical new life. Everything based on the mercies of God must change. And I would say this. Let me, let me just be blunt. I don't think it's possible for someone to experience the mercies of God and remain unchanged. I don't think that's possible. One evidence of salvation is that you start bearing fruit. It's one evidence of salvation is the transformation in your life that we're about to talk about. And I would say this, if you really knew what God did to you, for you, 
in Christ and the mercy He's given to you, it is not possible for you to remain the same. I would argue you're probably not saved. And I have had people tell me, well, I prayed a prayer when I was young, or I did such and such, I did such and such, but their lifestyles are completely wicked. And I was one of those. I was saved about nine and a half years ago. I grew up in church. I made a profession as a child. But I wasn't changed. I wasn't born again. I had not experienced the mercies of God. And so I lived a lifestyle you wouldn't believe until God saved me. And then my life radically changed. And so what I'm arguing is it's not possible to do it the other way. So Paul's arguing the good life begins with the mercies of God. Once you have that foundation, once you, once you understand what God did for you in Christ, then you're just wide open to whatever God wants, right? Everything changes. Nothing else matters. You stand before God and say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it based on the mercies of God. So that's what Paul is saying. So, the good life begins with the mercies of God. Number two, the good life is a life of sacrifice. Now let me ask you something. Well, he says it here. We'll we'll read it. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole being, right? Just present yourself as a living sacrifice. Now that word sacrifice, is that a word that the world would use to describe the good life? That's not, right? I mean, they may say, well, in, you know, in order for me to get to the good life, I need to sacrifice. I need, it's going to cost me something. I mean, if I want to be an NBA star, I've got to practice hard. Can't hang out with my friends as much. I got to sacrifice that time so I can practice hard and I can be one day in the NBA and then I can get to this good life in the NBA. But what about a life totally characterized by sacrifice? Now, if you'd see on the children's handout, they have a lamb there, right? Because when Paul uses terms like present yourself as a living sacrifice, that word present and sacrifice are both Old Testament law language. If you were a Jew living in Israel at the time of the temple and the sacrifices, what you would do is you would take an animal, a lamb or a goat or turtle doves or whatever you had and whatever the, the uh, certain situation called for, you would take that sacrifice and you would present it to the priest. And then the priest would do what with it? He'd take it and he'd kill it. Sacrifice requires death. So is is God calling us to present our bodies as a living uh, a sacrifice to die? I think the answer to that is yes and no. Okay? Yes in this way. God is calling us when we come before God and we realize the mercies of God and we present ourselves before Him as a living sacrifice, He is calling us to die to ourselves. All of your dreams all of your goals, all of your ambitions, God is saying, you want to follow Me based on the mercies I've shown you. I want you to die to all of those. Now, I want to bring you into into the Gospels here for a minute and show you an example of this. Matthew chapter 16. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Now, 
In verses 13 through 20, we won't read these, but uh, let me... Let me just sum up what they say. Jesus asked His disciples, Peter and the rest of the twelve, a question. He said, who does everybody say that I am? I mean, I'm stirring up, uh, stirring the waters here. Who, who does everybody say that I am? And they gave Him some answers. And then finally, Peter, the spokesman of the group, stood up and said, we believe that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was right on, right? Because then Jesus blessed Peter immensely and said, you didn't just come up with this. The Father in Heaven gave this to you. He revealed this to you. You are right now, Peter, being a spokesman in front of all of these people for God Himself. You are right. And then in verse uh, 21, Jesus begins to tell them, now that, now that they believe that He's the Christ, the one the Old Testament promised was coming, now He's going to show them what the Christ was supposed to do. Okay? Here's what He says. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, when Peter meant that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, what he meant was that Jesus was their King. They were waiting for a King from the line of David who was going to come and deliver them from all of the problems of this world. This king was going to come sit on David's throne, throw off all of their oppressors, throw off the Roman government. He was going to establish Israel as this great kingdom again. They were once again going to be like they, they were during David and Solomon's reigns. And I'm sure that Peter and the other disciples were thinking in their mind this great place that they had with Jesus in this kingdom, that they were going to be rulers with Him and life was going to be great. In other words, Peter was thinking, we are going to have the good life. The Messiah is here. The good life has come. Let's make this happen. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, as the Messiah, I have to suffer. I have to sacrifice myself. I'm going to be killed. And Peter and the others are like, what? And look at how he responds in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. He he had gone from being a spokesman for God to a spokesman for who? Satan. And he said... You, here it is, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wanted the worldly good life. He wanted that kingdom right here and now. He wanted all the riches of Solomon restored. He wanted Israel to be a great nation. He wanted it now. He wanted what the world at that time considered a good life. And Jesus said, that comes from man. You you don't have your mind set on the things of God. Here's what the good life, according to Jesus, looks like. Next verses, verse 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. What did the cross mean? What did it mean? It meant death. It meant you die. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But ever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man, Peter? If I set up the kingdom right now, and I did not do this redemptive work, and I didn't go to the cross for your sins, if I gave you this worldly good life, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What would a man give in return for his soul? What is the call of the kingdom? We sang it. The call of the kingdom is to die to yourself. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you take up your cross. That meant a bloody, grueling, humiliating, violent, painful death. We are called, says Paul, to die to ourselves and present our bodies, back in Romans chapter 12, to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, on your handout, kids, Peter was looking for a worldly good life, but Jesus showed him that the good life is a life of sacrifice. Peter was looking for a worldly good life, but Jesus showed him that good life is a life of sacrifice. So we're to die to ourselves, but we are also to die to our sins. Now, back in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does that mean? That word holy means set apart. And again, this is sacrificial language from the Old Testament law. I was just reading in Malachi the other day, and one of the indictments that God brought against Israel is that they used to bring sick and blind and lame animals to the priest to present them as a sacrifice. They were blemished. They brought the worst of the worst to God and presented it to Him as a sacrifice. He says, I, I don't accept that. That is not acceptable to me. A sacrifice that comes to me must be holy. So for us, it means we must die to our sins. Paul spent a lot of time arguing that in uh, Romans chapter 6. Are we going to live in sin? You're going to continue in sin so grace may abound? He says, God forbid you would do that. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's ridiculous. So as we present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, it means we no longer present the members of our bodies like our eyes and our hands and our feet and our minds as slaves of unrighteousness. That's what you used to do before you experienced the mercies of God. Now you've experienced the mercies of God. You no longer do that. You present your body holy and set apart from sin to God and you become a slave of righteousness. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, that is your sins, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If we're going to present our bodies a living sacrifice, it means this, that God's going to use us. That's His will. He wants to use His children to do awesome things for His glory. But we have to present ourselves, we have to cleanse ourselves, like uh, Paul said here, from our sins and say no to our sins and deny ourselves of our sins so we can be a holy sacrifice ready to be used by God. We get that? We can't come before God still living in our sins and say, use me. He can't. You aren't fit for use. You must die to your sins and present yourselves as slaves of righteousness. God can only use a clean vessel. 
one that has been purified from sin. If we live in a habitual sin, God cannot use us. We are called to die to ourselves. Okay, so we are called to die. The answer to that was yes, but unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, we are to be a living sacrifice. Okay, I had another sheep on there, but it, didn't, it wouldn't work out. The sheep looked scared. The sheep was scared for good reason, because he was about to die. Okay, he, the, the Israelite would walk up with the sheep, present it as a sacrifice, and the only person leaving that was the, the guy who presented the sacrifice. The sheep wasn't going anywhere. He was about to die. But we don't die. When we crawl up on the altar, we present our bodies a living sacrifice to God to do with us whatever He wants to do. We keep on living. He wants us to live, be a living sacrifice. This means every single day of our lives. We just... Present ourselves to God. What will you do with me today? Not my will be done, but thy will. Even if it costs you. Do you think the life of sacrifice to God isn't going to be costly and painful and full of trials? But what it in suffering? And God calls you to that. But what did Paul argue? I, I, he said, I would argue that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So the life of sacrifice will be, unlike what the world wants, it will be a life of suffering. So, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. And then at the end of that verse 1, he says, which is your spiritual worship. Now there's different interpretations of that, but I think what he's saying, I think that word spiritual could be reasonable. Actually, it's the Greek word logikos, which it sounds familiar, logical, right? That's where we get our word logical. And he's saying, guys, based on the mercies of God, it's only logical that your whole life is presented to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. Your entire existence for God. That's number two. So number two... The good life is a life of sacrifice. Number three, the good life is a life of rebellion. We see that in verse 2. A life of rebellion. This is my favorite. We're told over and over not to be rebels. Right? We're not supposed to be rebellious. Uh, Rebellion, we think sometimes, is synonymous with sin. And usually it is. If your rebellion is towards God, or if your rebellion is towards your parents, or if your rebellion is towards your uh, teachers, or if your rebellion is towards the law, then it is sinful. But this is a different kind of rebellion. Look what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. This world, in all of its thoughts and beliefs and systems and philosophies, is just like this flood, this tsunami coming at us. And what it wants to do is take us and conform it into its image. It wants us to be like them. But here's the problem. We're not supposed to be like them. Yes, we're sent into the world. The answer to not being conformed to the world is not retreat from the world. It isn't finding a, a place out in the country and, and staying clear of sinful people so we don't get contaminated. Actually, Jesus said... The same way I was sent into the world, now I'm sending you into the world. And Jesus got in and, spiritually speaking, got His hands dirty with sinful people. He was around them. He preached to them. He, he was rejected by them. And He was accepted by some. But He was in the world. And at the end, what did that cost Him? His life, right? On the cross. He went to the cross and He died. So we are sent into the world. 
but we're not to be allow the world's thinking to conform us into its image. That's what it's screaming to do. That's what it's trying to do. I have a 14-year-old daughter. One thing that scares me about her, uh, not about her specifically, but the, uh, the age in which she's growing up in is just how subtle and seductive the world is for Christians. We fall into it too. We all fall into the, the same traps. And in this world, I mean, if we watch TV uh, tonight, if you go home, you watch TV, you'll th- see things like this. Adultery is okay. Fornication is okay. Uh, homosexuality is okay. Greed, violence, divorce is just the way it is. Follow your heart. All of that is the world's thinking. And what it's trying to do is infiltrate our minds, and we're going to talk about our minds in just a second. It's trying to infiltrate our minds and get us to conform outwardly to something we are not inwardly. If we've experienced the, the, the mercies of God, that means inside of us has changed and we, our bodies are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we cannot allow what this world tells us is the good life to, to mold us and shape us. We are to be radically different from the world. We're to be rebels. You have James Dean on the handout. James Dean in 1955 did one of the only three movies he made and it was Rebel Without a Cause, right? But God is calling us to be a rebel with a cause. And the cause is the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory. Living a life completely and totally devoted to Him in rebellion against the world. We do not want to be conformed to the world. I have a friend who was a heroin addict. He's saved now. He's coming to our church. And... Um, he said, living in the world in rebellion against God was easy. Man, that was simple. All the partying he did and the things he pursued and the money he pursued and all that, that was just so simple to go with the flow. But to rebel against that has been the true test of his life. Since he's been saved, he finds the world, like we all do, trying to draw us back in. Like the psalmist said, we just cling to the dust and it's just drawing us back in and wants us to conform to its standards and its agenda. And he said, that's hard. Now he's living the hard life. The good life is the hard life, guys. Living a life for God is not easy. It's hard. It's brutal if you're doing it right. If you're finding yourself in this world too comfortable, you might want to do some soul searching. This world is not something we are to love. John said in his, gospel, or in his epistle, if you love the world, love of the Father is not in you. So don't be deceived. Now, we are not to be conformed to the world. We're not to love it. As a matter of fact, we're to overcome it. We're to conquer it. Jesus at the end of His life told His disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Our Savior was the first one and He triumphed. He, he conquered. The, the word is nikao and it's the, where we get our word Nike. Conqueror, victor. He was the victor over the world. We're being called to rebel against the world and have a victory over it. We're not to let it wrap us up and entangle us. It may cause us to love it. Okay, so the good life is a life of rebellion. Number four, the good life is a life of transformation. The good life is a life of transformation. There's a contrast here. See what he says in verse 2? He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but, on the other hand, be transformed 
And then He gives us the means of transformation, which is the renewal of, our, of your mind. Certain things you have to know here about this, what He's commanding you when He says, be transformed. You have to understand this. It is a present imperative passive. What does that mean? Okay, that's what kind of, of command, what kind of verb it is. What does that mean? It means this, that it's present in sense you always have to be doing it. You always have to be being transformed. This is our whole existence, is God transforming us, and Romans chapter 8 says, conforming us to the image of His Son. It's called sanctification. It's called growing in grace. It's called growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a life of transformation, becoming you were enemies of God, now you're children of God, and God is about the business of making you into like the firstborn of His children, which is Jesus Christ. That's what your life is all about. That's what the good life is, is God transforming us into the image of His Son. So it, you, it's present tense, meaning you always have to do it. It's a command, meaning you must do it. And it's in the passive tense, meaning that it's God doing that to you. Who's the one doing the transforming? You? No. It's God transforming you into the image of His Son. The good life is a life of transformation. Now, what are the means of transformation? He says right here, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What does he mean by that? Now remember, the world's at attack, and it will attack our minds, right? We need to be renewed in our mind. What did we sing when we sang for the renewal of our mind? We wanted God to speak to us, right? Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds, and let us grasp the heights of His plans for us. Where do we find the words of God in our Bibles, right? The means of transformation is the Word of God. And we need something else. Because actually the Bible can be a very dangerous thing to some people. You need the Spirit of God in you. You need the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul's arguing all through Romans chapter 8. To know the mind of God and to know His will in your life. You need the Spirit of God. And what He does is He illuminates the Word of God to you. So as you read the Bible, do you know why you understand that? Do you know why you understand the Bible? You understand the Bible because the Holy Spirit is allowing you to do that. That's called illumination. He's he's shedding light on it for you. He's giving you the spiritual wisdom and understanding that you need to be transformed. So the means of transformation are the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God. We renew our minds from the filth of the world with God's Word. And the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds and causes us to be transformed. Romans 8 and 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And let me warn you, especially kids, teenagers, The world will keep trying to suck you in. It's going to keep pulling at you. The way for you to resist that, and adults, the way for us to resist that is through the Word of God, begging God for the illumination that comes by the Holy Spirit so that He can transform us by what we read. It's in the Word of God that we learn what the will of God is. 
We need to be we need to love our Bibles. They're such a great gift. We serve Russian people and um they have plenty of Bibles now, but there was a time when they had they didn't have Bibles. And SGA used to uh set up uh radio towers all around the Soviet Union and just pump through uh, the gospel and one of the ministries they had is they would read in Russian a Russian Bible real slow so that the Russian Christians could write down what they heard over the radio and they could have portions of the Bible and there are those in existence right now I know two Russian people at least that have copies of those handwritten sections of scripture and I'd love to see one I want to on one of my trips I tried to find one this on this last trip and I couldn't but I want to see one just to, to see how hungry God's people have been for the Word. We have, we have so many translations. We've got them laying all over our house. We've got Bibles in our cars and in our houses and every place we can imagine. And we take that for granted. The Bible is a means of transformation in our lives. And finally, number five. The good life is a life of discernment. I'm convinced we need this more and more. We need to be discerning people. We kind of got the idea that we have liberty. Some of you, maybe, maybe some of you have backgrounds in fundamentalism, fundamentalism that went bad, right? And uh, you, you were told you had to wear certain things and don't do this, don't do that. This is what a Christian is. Don't do this, don't watch that, don't go to that place and all these kinds of things. And then you... Experience. We have people like this in our church. They've experienced this freedom that they're free in Christ. But then their pendulum swings the complete other way. And they start just living any way they want without discernment. But look what Paul says in verse 2. You're to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing... Testing what? Everything you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, listen now, knowledge, which we get from the Bible, and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We need to become a biblically critical thinker. We should not let the world do our thinking for us. We need to be able to discern and judge. You know what the word discernment means? It means being able to hold up two things and judge between them and say, this is the better option. Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Paul said, I can love God and do whatever I want. But, is everything that He would want to do profitable? Will it bring the most transformation in His life or has He become conformed to this world? So, we need to become a people of discernment. Let me give you, we'll end with this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to look at this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. This is 
If you're trying to decipher if something that you should do, watch, where, go, a plan for your life, anything. If you're trying to decipher, you're trying to discern, you're trying to judge, is this the will of God? Is this good in His sight? Would this be well-pleasing to Him? Would this be in accordance with His perfect will for my life and how He wants to use me? And I think it needs to get right down to so picky that it's literally every moment of our lives. What we watch. We are a media-driven culture. That's a fact. We have media flying at us. Internet, TV, movies. It's all there. We go in our cars, we turn on the radio. We're listening to things. And let me ask you this. How many times have you or I took the time to discern this thing? Say you have a show that you love. You watch it every week. And have you ever thought to yourself and tried to discern and judge, would this be the will of God for me to watch this? I mean, is this in accordance with a life that is fully devoted to God as a living sacrifice? I mean, is this show profitable to me in my transformation in my life? Is this helping me in the renewal of my mind? We need to learn to be people like that that biblically, critically think. We're critical thinkers because the world's telling you, yeah, what's the problem? Even some Christians are saying, well, all things are lawful. You know, if you, you tell some people they, they shouldn't do something, and what do they play? They, they got their, their cards out and they throw down the legalism card every time. Oh, that's legalistic. You can't tell me I can't do that. That's just legalism. Well, maybe it's more, maybe it's obedience. Maybe it's not legalism. Maybe it's discernment. Well, here's the rule of thumb as we judge through these things, and they are hard, they're challenging in our culture, but remember our goal. We don't want to be conformed to the world, Right? I think like God wants us to think. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, now listen to this. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whatever you do, that covers everything, right? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our lives as a living sacrifice unto God must constantly display His glory. He has saved you for His glory. He puts the church on display as this... this, uh, object of His mercies. And He does it. Why? Because you and I were such great people that we deserve to be saved? He does it for His glory. So He can be glorified in it. So that our whole lives just make God look as grand and as big as we can. When people look at us and the decisions we make in our lives and how we, we live differently than everybody else and they can say, I don't know much, but Jesus Christ means a lot to that person. They're willing to not do this. They're willing to be ridiculed. They're willing to lose family over it. Every decision of our lives, we should start thinking that way. Become 
thinkers because the world's thinking for us. And we are trying to discern. Remember what we're trying to do. Discern the will of God. And His will is to, according to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, be glorified in our lives. So every time we, we do something, we should say, how will this thing that I'm doing bring glory to God? Well, guys, because of the mercies of God, everything in our lives must change. We have been truly called to the good life. And we owe our God our all. God, the good life is a life of sacrifice. The good life is a life of rebellion. The good life is a life of transformation. And the good life is a life of discernment. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, We know that these things are very easy to say. But we have all experienced the pull of this world. And we're reluctant many times to admit worldliness in our life or even to think about it and start becoming discerning because we know we'll probably have to give up things. I mean, we know deep down that some of the things maybe we do or oh, that are probably not the best things for us and they're probably not the things that are bringing you glory. And Father, I've heard of people who have heard the call of God on their lives to devote themselves to You in some certain way or to turn their whole lives over to You but they're afraid to do it because they know it would be a life of sacrifice. God, this world wants to conform us to its image. And we need so desperately the renewal of our minds. So I do lift up this congregation to You and I pray that they would become a people who devote themselves wholly and entirely to You. I pray that I would do the same. That the Christians throughout Rockford would live in such a way that brings glory to You. That we would be living the good life according to God. That we would be willing to do whatever it is that You call us to do. All for your glory. And we lift this up to you in the name of your Son. Amen.